Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sio, set to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. One of the new and improvements to the Three Rivers Talk Show here this academic year. Would like to clarify some things here before we get started. As a result of a very hectic and chaotic first week, I was not on the air last Monday or Friday, so I do apologize for that. And there is one change as a result of that chaos. So as you all are aware, for those who listen live on BBN Online Radio, I always used to do the show Mondays and Fridays from 3 to 4. However, now, this year, it is going to be on Fridays only from 2 to 4. So it's still two hours a week. It's just one two-hour show on Friday instead of an hour on Monday and an hour on Friday. Just to clear that up for you, those of you who listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever it may be, you are in the same boat as you were before. It's just now it's all together for the course of a week in a two-hour edition instead of two separate one-hour versions. Getting into it right away, we're going to start with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And what other way would there be to start, seeing as it is, in fact, football season? I mean, the Steelers' regular season kicks off here in nine days. And one of the biggest aspects, one that is drawing the attention of everybody that pays attention to Pittsburgh sports, and even those outside of the Pittsburgh demographics is the starting quarterback battle Mitch Trubisky against Kenny Pickett who is Mike Tomlin going to name as his starting quarterback because Mike Tomlin has not named a starting quarterback yet for week one of the regular season and so it is still very much open at least to the public whether it'll be Mitch Trubisky or Kenny Pickett under center in week one in Cincinnati. And as I have said from the very beginning, you know, this position is Mitch Trubisky's job to lose. Meaning that when he signed with the Steelers back in March, it was wildly and very accurately predicted that he was going to be the starting quarterback come week one. And of course, the Steelers went out and signed Mitch Trubisky because nobody knew what was going to happen in the draft. Nobody expected Kenny Pickett to fall to pick 20 when the Steelers were on the clock. Mock drafts were showing Pickett to go in the top five or the top 10, and the Steelers weren't going to trade up to get their guy. So Mitch Trubisky was a little bit of insurance, but at the same time, somebody that you knew would be in serious consideration to go out there and start week one in Cincinnati. And then Kenny Pickett comes in and make things even more interesting with as well as he played in preseason. Now, I have to admit, I was very unsure of Kenny Pickett the first two, two and a half weeks of training camp. I understand that for the most part, they were in T-shirts and shorts. 
I understand that there were minimal to no pads involved, and it was just guys going out there, throwing the football around just to get themselves back into it slowly. But Kenny Pickett at that time was running with the threes. And when I say the threes, for those of you who aren't really sure of what I'm referencing, threes are the third string team. One's first team, two's second team, so on and so forth. So Kenny Pickett was out there running with the threes. Of course, at the time, Mason Rudolph was with the twos. Mitch Trubisky was with the ones. And when Pickett was running with the threes, he did not look good. I understand, you know, he's running with the threes. And there's not maybe the greatest amount of talent with those threes. But at the same time, he was also a first-round draft pick that had a lot of promise and a lot of potential to go out there and demonstrate why he was worthy of that first round draft pick. And then of course, as the pads got put on more consistently, started going out there slowly improving. What really sealed the deal for Kenny Pickett, in my opinion, for the number two position on the depth chart behind Mason Rudolph was the first preseason game that the Steelers played when Pickett went out there with the threes even at that point and really lit it up of course helping the Steelers mount a victory over the Seattle Seahawks of course Pickett throwing multiple touchdown passes for the Steelers in that contest the game winning one going to Tyler Vaughn's with just three seconds remaining in the fourth quarter And again, that was really what started the idea, you know, maybe Kenny Pickett is for real. Maybe Kenny Pickett can seriously give Mitch Trubisky a run for his money and go out there and start week one in Cincinnati. Now, do I see the Steelers throwing Pickett into the fire right away? Absolutely not. But what I do see is that the leash between Mitch Trubisky and Kenny Pickett is a whole lot tighter than it used to be. And Mitch Trubisky has a lot less room for error now, knowing how well Kenny Pickett played in the preseason. And that's not to say Mitch Trubisky played poorly by any means, because he was out there with the ones every game, ran the offense efficiently, made some questionable throws, but at the same time, you know, he's learning a new playbook trying to get chemistry with all of his receivers, tight ends, even running backs. And I'm not opposed to, you know, trying to test your limits in preseason. So those few bad throws I was referencing, I'm very much willing to just shove those under the rug and forget about it because I know Mitch Trubisky is capable of being a solid NFL quarterback. But if he starts to struggle, I can very easily see Mike Tomlin telling Kenny Pickett to get his helmet on and get ready because the Steelers, as Mike Tomlin has said repeatedly, are still trying to win this season. Just because they don't have Ben Roethlisberger doesn't mean it's a rebuild. Just because people might be counting them out with the Cincinnati Bengals being a Super Bowl contender and the Super Bowl finalist last season doesn't mean the Steelers aren't going to go out there and try and compete and give them a run for their money because they will. 
And I think if the Steelers struggle early with Trubisky, Pickett might be all it takes to get that spark, especially knowing that this Steelers fan base is very much behind Kenny Pickett. And I don't want to go out there and say they're hoping Trubisky fails because nobody wants to see Trubisky fail. And if you do, then you need to reconsider your fan base status because you should not be wanting Mitch Trubisky to fail. But on the flip side, there are a much larger amount of Steelers fans who want to see Kenny Pickett go out there, get his opportunity, and never look back. And, of course, that's something I expect Kenny Pickett to do at some point this season, whether it's Trubisky struggling, whether it's Trubisky, knock on wood, getting hurt. I mean, one of those two things I feel like are inevitable at some point this season, and it's ultimately going to lead to Kenny Pickett going in there. And it's going to be the exact same scenario in which Ben Roethlisberger took over for Tommy Maddox. Something happens to Maddox. In this case now, something happens to Trubisky. Roethlisberger came in, never looked back after taking the starting job. Pickett has the potential to go in and take the starting job and never look back. I mean, the writing is on the wall for this to happen again. And then the thing becomes, okay, if Pickett does, in fact, go out there at some point this season and really light it up, the Steelers are going to find themselves in the same spot that the San Francisco 49ers were currently in this offseason with trying to find a trade partner for Mitch Trubisky. Because Trubisky's on a two-year contract, $14 million, so... Essentially, $7 million this year, $7 million next year. And while for a quarterback, that is a very cheap contract. So in that regard, the Steelers might have a lot more teams lined up trying to fight for his services. Every other team in the league is going to recognize that the Steelers have zero leverage in any trade discussions regarding Mitch Trubisky. Because... It's the Steelers who want to move on from Trubisky. And it's every other team in the league that wants him. And I know you might be questioning, well, how would the Steelers not have any leverage there? Because it would be Omar Khan, the new general manager, who would be actively trying to trade Mitch Trubisky to get him off of the Steelers' salary cap and payroll. Or what could end up happening is recognizing that Mitch Trubisky is only making $7 million on average next season. The Steelers could end up doing something similar to what the 49ers ended up doing with Jimmy Garoppolo, where it might be a little bit of a contract restructure with Trubisky and the Steelers not necessarily as big of a restructure as Garoppolo's was with San Francisco, but settling on a number that would keep Trubisky in Pittsburgh for one more year and allowing him to serve as Kenny Pickett's backup in 2023. 
because that very well could be something that happens. And it's something that is going to be very interesting to see how it all unfolds both this season into the off season and into training camp slash preseason of 2023. And again, this is all very much speculation at this point. Mike Tomlin, just to confirm, has not named a starting quarterback yet for week one in Cincinnati. Whether or not that is just Mike Tomlin trying to draw things out and create more talk and speculation, I wouldn't be surprised. But at the same time, I also would not be surprised if this decision was taking longer than expected because they are seriously considering starting Kenny Pickett. I mean, you have to leave all options on the table here when you're looking at why Mike Tomlin has not named a starting quarterback and what is going through his head, what is going through Matt Canada's head as offensive coordinator. And if they really want to, they could get general manager Omar Khan in on this discussion. Now, for the most part, I'm sure Omar Khan would probably leave it in the hands of Mike Tomlin, Matt Canada, and quarterbacks coach Mike Sullivan, not to be confused with Penguins head coach Mike Sullivan, two entirely different people. So those three are going to be the ones that have the biggest say in this decision. And again, I would not be surprised if it ends up being Mitch Trubisky week one in Cincinnati, but he has a very small room for error. And while we're on the topic of quarterbacks, now the question becomes what to do with Mason Rudolph? Because Mason Rudolph is making $3 million this season to end up being the third string quarterback, not even as things stand now, going to be getting a helmet on game day because Mike Tomlin only dresses two quarterbacks. So now the question becomes, what do you do? Omar Khan is very reluctant to trade Mason Rudolph, especially now knowing that Chris Oladokun was signed by the Chiefs to be on their practice squad. So aside from Pickett and Trubisky, Rudolph is the only guy who knows the Steelers' offense. And he has been in Matt Canada's system for several years. So of the three, he should know it the best. He knew it the best going into camp. Whether or not that's still the case, I have no confirmation of that. I would still like to hope that Rudolph knows it best simply based upon his experience. But it's the fact of knowing the playbook. And the Steelers, through Omar Khan, have said themselves that they view Mason Rudolph at this point as an insurance policy. Meaning, if something were to happen to Trubisky and Pickett, that would be the time they would go to Mason Rudolph. Whether or not we see any sort of contract restructure with Mason Rudolph, or they just decide to continue to pay him his $3 million, I have no idea. That will be something that continues to develop, along with the trade rumors about Mason Rudolph, because there was a strong rumor that the Detroit Lions were looking at Mason Rudolph and that they would want to have him be their backup quarterback 
behind Jared Goff. Now, don't get me wrong. If Mason Rudolph is the third-string quarterback for the Steelers, I would have to argue then that the Steelers would have one of the best third-string quarterbacks, if not the best third-string quarterback in the league. And then you're probably sitting there listening, thinking, who the hell cares which team has the best third-string quarterback? Well, again, if Omar Khan didn't care about which team would have the best third-string quarterback, he wouldn't have came out and said that Mason Rudolph is an insurance policy, and he would have shipped him off a week and a half ago to a team like Detroit or somebody of that nature for a fourth or fifth round draft pick. That's the truth. If the Steelers did not value Mason Rudolph in any way, shape, or form, he would not still be on the roster right now, and they would have gone out and signed a no-name to be their third-string quarterback and an even bigger no-name to be their practice squad quarterback. And that is 100% the truth. You can say what you want about Mason Rudolph, whether or not you think he's a good quarterback. But he knows the offense and is highly regarded by the Steelers coaching staff and front office. He may not be a starter, but he is still a Pittsburgh Steeler and needs to be treated with respect by the fan base. Those who were at the Seattle game and booed him are a disgrace. I don't care who that offends. If you were at that game and booed Mason Rudolph, either because you don't like him or because you were upset by Mike Tomlin's decision to play Rudolph before Kenny Pickett, you're a disgrace to the Steelers fan base. You really are. Because I have no problems with our fans booing Lamar Jackson in a highly contested AFC North matchup against the Baltimore Ravens. But when you start booing your own team and your own players, that gets ridiculous, especially when the boos came out before he even took a snap. He was running onto the field and was getting booed. For what? What did he do at that point to be booed? It's a hard enough thing to justify from me booing any of your players, much less somebody who is entering their first preseason game of the year and hasn't even taken a snap. So in the end, I think the Steelers are going to keep Mason Rudolph because of how Omar Khan views him as an insurance policy. He's in the final year of his contract. He will hit free agency next year. And then at that point, I would fully expect the Steelers to let him walk and try to find a better opportunity elsewhere in the National Football League because there is no doubt in my mind or anybody's mind that Mason Rudolph can be in the NFL. It's just a matter of it unfortunately not working out here in the city of Pittsburgh. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, we'll be discussing the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Mike Sullivan contract extension, along with the roster configuration and what to expect entering preseason and into October right here on the Bethany Online Radio.
And we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Penguins, as I mentioned before the break. 
looking at the Mike Sullivan contract extension along with the roster configuration as things stand currently with the Pittsburgh Penguins. So just within the last week, Mike Sullivan was granted a contract extension to remain as the head coach of the team. It's a three-year deal. The Penguins reporting it will start at after the 2023-2024 season and run through the 2026-2027 season. And immediately, I think of this as great news because Mike Sullivan is a highly regarded coach in the NHL. In my opinion, he has been snubbed two years in a row when it comes to, at the very least, being considered for the Jack Adams Award, which is given to the best head coach of the regular season. I mean, he wasn't even named as a finalist for this award two years in a row. So in that regard, I think this is great for the Penguins that they have one of the greatest coaches in the league and one that, for whatever reason, gets absolutely zero recognition for what he does with this team, especially given that the Penguins have dealt with a lot of injuries the past two seasons and has still managed to make them into a playoff team and has still managed to get them close to or over 100 points. That is something not a lot of coaches would be able to do, especially when it's not just your fourth-line center that's missing 20 games. You've got Crosby. You've got Malkin. Gensel, Latang. Latang only missed a few games last season, but all of the big players for the Penguins missed some time last season or the season prior. And Mike Sullivan still made this team get to the playoffs. But on the flip side, though, there's the argument, you know, look, this is a team that has had success in the regular season for the last handful of years but when you get to the playoffs, there's absolutely nothing to show for it. I mean, you look at 2018, not really going to put a whole lot of emphasis on 2018 because the Penguins were coming off of back-to-back Stanley Cup championship runs. They were gassed, point blank and simple. Lost in the second round to Washington in six games. Evgeny Kuznetsov scoring the series clinching goal. I was at that game. It still haunts me to this day. 2019, swept by the Islanders. 2020, in the COVID bubble up in Toronto, losing three of four to Montreal, who were the 24th team out of 24 to go into the Stanley Cup playoffs. Because remember, the regular season was not completed So in addition to the eight teams that would have typically made the playoffs, they threw in four more teams that realistically still had a chance to have clinched a playoff spot if the regular season would have concluded. So you have that horrific upset in Toronto. 2021, you lose in six games to the New York Islanders. 2022, you lose in seven games to the New York Rangers. And I understand the past two seasons that it was the goaltending that cost the Penguins 
Tristan Jari in 2021 and the lack of Tristan Jari up until game seven in 2022. And in 2022, for all intents and purposes, you could say the lack of Casey to Smith because that hurt the Penguins as well. I truly believe even if the Penguins had Casey to Smith for that series against the Rangers, they go on to win the series. And I know there have been times where I've been very critical of Casey to Smith. But anybody who has NHL experience could have and would have been a step up, a major step up at that over Louis Domingue. You can say all you want about him being the hero of game one, coming off the bench cold, and the whole spicy pork and broccoli meme. But at the end of the day, in games two through six, Louis Domingue hurt the Penguins more than he helped. And if Casey Smith is in there, it's a different story. If Tristan Jari is in there, it's a much different story. But going back to Mike Sullivan, aside from the goaltending, the Penguins were outplayed in 2019 by the Islanders when Barry Trotz ran the trap at the neutral zone. They were outplayed by Montreal in the bubble. I mean, that cannot happen where you get outplayed two years in a row in a series that you are considered to be the favorite, if not the heavy favorite. That is embarrassing. And then to go out the next two years because of goaltending? I fully supported Ron Hextall's decision to back Tristan Jari after his misery in the 2021 playoffs. And Jari turned around. He became a much better goaltender in game seven. You could tell he was not quite 100%, but even an injured Jari was better than a healthy Domingue. And even then, he still made some key saves that Louis Domingue 100% would not have made. So knowing that, Ron Hextall made the right decision. And now we see, or we saw, I should say, in the offseason, Hextall brought in Dustin Tokarski to be the third-string goaltender behind DeSmith, who is in turn behind Jari, recognizing that Domingue did not get it done and that Tokarski is hopefully an upgrade over Domingue in the event that the Penguins find themselves in a similar position. And nobody wants to see the Penguins in that spot again where they're using their third-string goaltender in a playoff series. Nobody wanted to see that. Nobody wanted to see DeSmith. And that is not a slight against DeSmith in any way, shape, or form. But when you're in the playoffs, you want to see your starting goaltender because they give you the best chance to win. But I will credit Mike Sullivan because goaltending aside, the Penguins outplayed the New York Rangers in that series. Offensively and defensively. And I'm not talking about with 
games won and lost, goals conceded, because a lot of that was as a result of Deming's poor play. I'm talking about how the Penguins set up defensively in the defensive zone against the Rangers. The quality of chances that the Penguins limited the Rangers to at times throughout the series. Offensively, how consistently the Penguins got shots on goal. How they consistently made the life of Igor Shesterkin absolutely miserable and flushed him out of at least one, if not two games. And now that I think about it, I believe it truly was two games where Igor Shesterkin got pulled and they had to send in Alexander Georgiev. Of course, Georgiev no longer with the New York Rangers, but he had to come in because the Penguins were just lighting up Igor Shesterkin, and he had no answer for them, especially at home when the Penguins crowd would start chanting Igor. That rattled him tremendously. I mean, a few years ago, the Penguins fans did the same thing with Braden Holtby. Of course, Capitals fans got their turn in Washington, D.C. with Matt Murray. And it rattled Braden Holtby. Of course, at that point, Matt Murray pretty much knew what to expect. So while there may have been instances where it bothered him, it was not necessarily as apparent. But it rattled Braden Holtby. Igor Shesterkin was terrified, and he made Brayton Holtby's rattling look like nothing. So I think there's a lot in the picture here with Mike Sullivan. A lot of positives, a handful of negatives, but the positives greatly outweigh the negatives. And in the end, I support the decision to extend Mike Sullivan's contract. And of course, this also coincides with when Crosby, when Malkin, and when Latang are reaching the end of their careers. Of course, Latang is signed for six more seasons. Evgeny Malkin signed for four more years. Sidney Crosby is still under contract currently, but if he wants to keep playing, the Penguins will tell him, you know, you can have what you want, and Crosby's going to respond back and just say, I'll keep my $8.7 million per season, and the deal is done in the blink of an eye because the Penguins aren't going to ever let Sidney Crosby step into another uniform, unless, of course, it's a Team Canada uniform, but they will not let him step into another uniform of an NHL team. That is for damn sure. Nobody in that Penguins organization wants to see Sidney Crosby play for another team. So the core will stay together until they retire. And given that Latang's deal is a little bit longer than Malkin's, he might play more than Malkin, possibly even more than Crosby. But at the same time, it's stretched out there for Latang so that the average annual value, which is important for the salary cap, is much lower than what it would have been had he taken a shorter deal. Now, when you look at the Penguins roster construction, 
for this season and how that is going to play out. There are still a lot of questions. Of course, the Penguins went out and made some acquisitions, brought back Danton Heinen, Kasperi Kapanen was signed to avoid arbitration. You've got Ryan Pelling from the Montreal Canadiens trade that also brought back Jeff Petrie, sending Matheson to the Canadiens. Ricard Raquel was brought back. Brian Rust was brought back. So for the most part, offensively, it was a lot of re-signs. And to me, that shows Ron Hextall, Mike Sullivan, believe in the offensive group to go out there and get the job done. Defensively, though, it was several changes. Of course, Matheson was sent to Montreal. Jeff Petrie came back. We saw John Marino get sent to New Jersey. Ty Smith came back. The Penguins signed Jan Ruda in free agency after spending the last handful of seasons in Tampa Bay, who is a multiple-time Stanley Cup winning champion. So you add some experience there defensively in front of Jari, in front of DeSmith, or even in front of Dustin Tokarski, because those options are all on the table. Of course, defensively, you still have Mark Friedman, Brian Dumoulin, Latang, of course. That one isn't is surprised by anybody. And of course, I mentioned his six-year contract extension. Marcus Pedersen in there as well. Chad Ruedel. So there is a logjam defensively for the Penguins, despite trading away two of their defensemen from last season. You've got Dumoulin, Friedman. That's two. Latang makes three. Petrie is four. Pedersen five. Ruedel six. Ruta seven, Ty Smith eight, and then P.O. Joseph makes nine, who P.O. Joseph is fully expected to be a part of the NHL roster at some point next season because the Penguins really like him. They're very excited for him and the steps he's taken in the AHL. Nine defensemen, only six dress. I would not be surprised, and unfortunately, he drew the short stick. Ty Smith is able to be sent to Wilkes-Barre Scranton without having to clear waivers. So in a way, I think, unfortunately, he's going to be the odd man out because he has that flexibility. And as far as the other two who either get put on waivers or become healthy scratches, it's going to be a major decision by Mike Sullivan and the coaching staff, and that's going to be something that we pay attention to in the preseason. As of right now, if I had to take a guess, I would say Mark Friedman and Chad Ruedel are the ones who either get scratched or put on waivers. Simply because Friedman was more often than not in that role last season, unless, of course, there was an injury. Ruedel was in that scenario two seasons ago and was the right-handed defenseman on the third pairing last year. So it's not that Ruido isn't serviceable. I just think that the Penguins organization 
sees him as one who can be upgraded upon and would be very easily turned into the odd man out. Whether or not that is the right idea, whether or not it works out in the Penguins' favor, only time will tell. And, of course, preseason can dictate a lot of things. I mean, you have to expect the unexpected. As always, anything can happen. But I'm very excited for this Penguins roster. Yes, they got a little bit older, especially defensively, with Petrie, Ruta, and even offensively, there wasn't a whole lot of changes, just a bunch of re-signs. Brian Rust included in that re-sign as well. But what I'm excited about is the fact that the Penguins added size defensively. That was a big point of emphasis Ron Hextall made was that you have to add size on the defense. That was an area where, especially the Rangers, with their physicality, whether or not any of it was legal is a story for a different day. Their physicality helped them advance in the series when they were not the better team. So now it's going to be the Penguins who are much more physical with Petrie, with Jan Ruda. Of course, those are just two of the names. Of course, P.O. Joseph can be physical at times. So can Ty Smith, Pedersen, Dumoulin, Latang. But you have two guys in Petrie and Ruda who are new to the organization and are going to be much more willing to be physical to prove their point and demonstrate why they deserve to be here over somebody like Pedersen, like Dumoulin, who are very much familiar with Mike Sullivan's speed system and just trying to play fast and play simple. But now that you have some enforcers, for lack of better words, on the defensive pairings, it's really going to prove that this Penguins team is much more well-rounded than it was a year ago. And that's not to say the guys that they have traded away in Marino and Matheson were bad by any means because they were both solid defensemen. Marino, a little bit of a down year last season compared to his rookie season a year prior. But you have that size now. I mean, Jeff Petrie, 6'3", 209 pounds. When you look at Jan Ruda, 6'3", 204 pounds. Those are two big bodies that you need defensively. And it's going to make the Penguins a team that is much more difficult to get past. It's going to make the Penguins a much more difficult team to take advantage of physically. And now you have two guys even, if necessary, who you could throw out there with the mindset of dropping the gloves and protecting the stars in Crosby, in Malkin, Latang, Gensel, Rust, whoever it may be. Not that Ruda and Petrie, to my knowledge, are extreme fighters, but you have guys out there who are going to scare goons, such as Tom Wilson and Jacob Truba. Those goons are not going to try the same shenanigans against the Penguins that they did a year or two ago. And if they are stupid enough to do that, 
then they might get a fistful from Jan Ruda or even Jeff Petrie. And if and when that time comes, it will 100% be justified. Not only because that's the game of hockey, but it's also because Tom Wilson and Jacob Truba are goons. There is no other way to describe them except for them being a goon. And I credit Ron Hextall for going out there and believing in what he has established for what defensemen need to be, which are big bodies that can go out there and take care of the puck, but also finding those who are fast skaters and can fit in Mike Sullivan's system. And so the Penguins, they might be a little bit slower because Matheson and Marino probably skate much quicker than Petrie and Ruta, not only because they're younger, but they're smaller. But I am very much willing to sacrifice a little bit of speed for a whole lot of size. And if it puts Truba and Tom Wilson in their places, I am all for it. And it's something that is going to make the Penguins a much better team now and moving forward for the duration of Petrie and Ruta's contracts. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, one of the new segments here on the show, looking at University of Pittsburgh sports. And of course, what a better way to kick it off than talk about the backyard brawl and of course a season outlook for the Panthers coming up next right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
We're back here on the Three Members Talk Show, looking now at the backyard brawl last night between the Pitt Panthers and the West Virginia Mountaineers, a game as old as time. Of course, the two teams meeting last night at the newly named Acrisure Stadium, formerly, and in my opinion, still Heinz Field. The first time these teams have met in almost 11 years. Of course, the last meeting prior to this was November 25th, 2011, a game that, in my opinion and the opinion of a lot of college football fans, and even those who are on the college game day pregame show, agree. This is a game that needs to be played every single year. There is zero justification for that 11-year break in the backyard brawl. I understand the Big East for football collapsed. Pitt went to the ACC. WVU went to the Big 12. I get that. But these teams still play non-conference games. That game should be in their schedules every year. And you have it alternate between Pittsburgh and Morgantown as to where that game gets played every year. And, you know, now, last night was the first of four consecutive years where it's back. Then they're going to take a little bit of a break, and then they're going to play it four more times. No, that game needs to be on the schedule every single year. Get it done. There were 70,000 people in Pittsburgh last night at the stadium watching that game, plus the millions of people watching on TV, if not billions. And you're really going to sit there and try and justify why this game is not being played every single year? There is zero reason for it. The teams are 75 miles apart. WVU especially travels much further than that for conference games, and that 75 miles doesn't even get them a third of the way to their opponent, especially when they go to Kansas or Kansas State or down to Texas. I mean, to take on a school like TCU. I mean, the sheer stupidity of the college football schedule creators to not have this game every single year baffles me. Whether you want it at the beginning of the season as a kickoff or you put it at the end of the season like it always used to be, it's got to be one of those two spots. And I remember so much of my childhood was centered around the backyard brawl. Thanksgiving time always used to be played around Thanksgiving. I'd go over to my grandma's. We'd be eating dinner. We'd watch the game. Myself, my brother, my parents, all cheering for Pitt. My uncle and my two cousins cheering for West Virginia, a little bit of a family rivalry, but that's what made the game so great. And to not have that for 11 years is a joke. It's a complete and utter joke. And this whole thing, like I said, of having it for four, taking it away, and then bringing it back for another four, no. Get it done to play every single year. You saw what it meant to Pitt fans and West Virginia fans last night. Get it done 
and have him play on a yearly basis. You're not going to worry at all about what if we wear out the effects of the backyard brawl? What if we wear out the hype? The hype is always there. It will always be there. These two schools hate each other's guts. They want to play each other every year and come out on top. And there's nothing wrong with that. Let them play. Anyways, as far as the game last night, it was a very back-and-forth contest for those who did not get the opportunity to watch. And if you did, you missed a hell of a game. Of course, there was only three points on the board after an entire 15-minute quarter. Rather, not 15 minutes. They don't play 15 minutes in college football. Actually, matter of fact, they do. I don't know what I'm. I don't know what I'm thinking here. Been a long week. First 15 minutes, three points on the board combined. We get to halftime. Again, we're tied at, at 10. So the Mountaineers made up for the three points Pitt put up in the first quarter. And then you get to the third quarter, Pitt with the slight edge, and they were tied again in the fourth quarter. But the Panthers were able to get the edge. And for the Mountaineers, I mean, Bryce Ford Wheaton is an absolute monster for West Virginia. Last night, nine receptions, 97 yards, two touchdowns. Standing in at 6'3", 224 pounds. That is incredible size for a wide receiver. Made it known last night that he's making a name for himself and is going to go out there and get the damage done. As you're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. And he made life extremely miserable for Pat Narduzzi's defense. Absolutely miserable. I mean, he could not be covered. And then in addition to him, you have Sam James, who is the shortest of the three West Virginia starting receivers at six foot and also the lightest at 176 pounds. James went out there and put up five catches for 50 yards. Of course, Mike O'Laughlin, the tight end, even bigger than Bryce Ford Wheaton at 6'5", he was only held to one catch. Of course, it was a big game, but you also have Caden Prather, who's 6'4", 211. The Mountaineers' offense is loaded with size. And... Bryce Ford Wheaton, despite that, despite the talent, was able to continuously shine for West Virginia, clearly the favorite target of JT Daniels. And for the Panthers, you had a little bit of much more, let me rephrase that, you had a good bit more of Keaton Slovis 
spreading the ball around. You had Jared Wayne out there catching three passes for 89 yards. You have Kanata Monkfield at 6'1", catching five passes for 71 yards. And then you have even Rodney Hammond Jr. coming out of the backfield to make two catches for 55 yards. Of course, Rodney Hammond Jr. primarily making his presence known on the ground with a pair of scores on 74 yards. But the Panthers' offense is pretty dynamic itself. And that's not to say that the defenses are bad in the slightest. But the Panthers are really going to be relying on their offense this season. West Virginia would have to imagine is much of the same for them. Now, Keaton Slovis won the starting quarterback job in camp over Nick Patty. Of course, Slovis, the transfer from USC, trying to fill the shoes that Kenny Pickett left vacant after departing for the NFL. When you look at the stats, you see that Slovis didn't play all that bad. 16 to 24, 308 yards, one touchdown, no picks. But there were times where Keaton Slovis looked absolutely horrible last night. I get, you know, it's first game of the season. It's the first time the backyard brawl is being played in almost 11 years. You've got 70,000 people there watching you. But he went to USC. He should be familiar with big crowds. He should be familiar with big atmosphere games. So in a way, I don't really see that as an excuse for Keaton Slovis. And he looked like he was out there at times seeing ghosts in between the West Virginia defenders. That's how poor he was for the Panthers. And I'm not calling for his head right away. I'm not saying that Pat Narduzzi needs to go out there and start Nick Patty in the Panthers' next game at home against Tennessee. That's not where I'm going with it. My point is, is that Keaton Slovis needs to get it together sooner rather than later. Because if he does not, then Pat Narduzzi is going to be experiencing a very interesting decision as to whether or not to make a quarterback change. When Pitt played their bowl game last season against Michigan State, Nick Patty, prior to his injury, looked very good and looked like somebody who could go out there and take over for Kenny Pickett. Of course, that was before the whole Keaton Slovis ordeal came into play. But if Nick Patty stays healthy in that Peach Bowl, I think Pitt ends up defeating Michigan State. I know the Panthers' defense really struggled that game. But Nick Patty would have been much more dynamic for the Pitt offense against Michigan State than the offense was without him. And that ultimately made things 
much more difficult when Davis Belleville, Davis Bevel, I should say, took over for the Panthers. Again, it was a tremendous game last night. I mean, you couldn't have written it up better in terms of the script. And, of course, I'm not going out there and saying that that game was scripted because it wasn't. But the way the game panned out, you could not have asked for a better way for it to end, regardless of who came out on top. Am I happier knowing that Pitt won last night over West Virginia? Yes, absolutely. But at the end of the day, if the score was flipped and it was West Virginia 38, Pitt 31, I would go out there and say, you know what? Yes, there are areas where Pitt seriously needs to improve, but it was a solid game and credit to West Virginia. And there still are areas where Pitt needs to tremendously improve. The defense being one of them, because West Virginia, not to say they're a bad team, but Pitt is definitely going to play much more tougher programs than West Virginia. And to go out there and concede 31 is something that cannot continue to happen. Pitt's entire defense needs to seriously watch on film what went wrong last night and ensure it doesn't happen again. Now, they won't be playing against a team that has Bryce Ford Wheaton lining up against them every single week. But when conference play hits and Pitt starts playing teams like North Carolina, Virginia Tech, Duke, those teams are going to have talented players. Even next week against Tennessee, talented players will be on those rosters. And you cannot continue to give up 31 points a game and expect your offense to go out there and bail you out. Now, of course, as a whole, I would argue Pitt was collectively bailed out by Neil Brown's cowardish decision on fourth and one just beyond midfield later in the game, up by seven, mind you, to try and draw Pitt offside. And when the Panthers didn't jump, Neil Brown ran the play clock down, took a delay of game penalty, and proceeded to punt. West Virginia at that point had all of the momentum in the world, needed less than a yard to keep the drive going. And if the Mountaineers had picked up that first down, I would have argued right then and there the game was over and Pitt was done. Pitt would have lost if West Virginia continued that drive, even if they got a field goal. I think at that point, the mountain is too steep for Pitt to try and come back and win. I really do. And instead, Neil Brown decides to punt. We've seen this a lot where coaches have faith in their defense, in my opinion, way too much. Not that you don't want to trust your defense, but the game of football, whether it's collegiately 
or in the NFL is moving at such a pace where it is drastically favoring the offenses. And every game is very high scoring. I would much rather take my chances on my offense not being able to being able to go out there and pick up less than a yard compared to my defense going out there and trying to stop a team like Pitt who has a highly touted offense on their home field with their crowd in attendance. Not to say there weren't Mountaineer fans there because there were a good bit of them. Knowing that there were 70 plus thousand people, you knew there would be a good bit of them. But to not go for it on fourth and inches, up by seven, just beyond midfield, is absurd. I get you want to try and punt and make Pitt march down the field 95-plus yards to score. But we've seen it before where even if the defense makes that initial stop after pinning the opposition deep inside their territory, they make the stop, they get the ball back, the drive stalls, they punt, the opponent then gets decent field position, drives down the field, and scores in one way, shape, or form. And that's essentially how it unfolded last night. Prior to JT Daniels ultimately throwing the game-losing pick six that unfortunately went through the hands of Bryce Ford Wheaton. I mean, he made so many big plays last night for the Mountaineers, and it was just rather unfortunate he couldn't hold that one in because, again, in all honesty, if Ford Wheaton holds on to that ball, I expect the Mountaineers would have gone down the field. If they did not tie the game, it would have had a much greater impact on the game. And even after JT Daniels threw the pick six, the Mountaineers almost came back to tie the game. So at that point, if Bryce Ford Wheaton holds on to the ball, and I'm going to correct myself from a few seconds ago, if Bryce Ford Wheaton holds on to the ball, WVU could have easily managed the clock while continuing to drive down the field and kick the game-winning field goal as time expired. Again, not that I'm placing blame on Bryce Ford Wheaton because he played a hell of a game. But that is a mistake that he unfortunately now has to live with for the rest of this season. And it was one that was capitalized on perfectly by Pitt's defense who went out there and got the job done, did just enough to stay alive. And I'm not even going to get into the whole targeting debate because that entire rule is messed up. There were several times last night you thought it was targeting. It wasn't. You didn't think it was targeting. It was. That's a disaster. And it's something that college football needs to fix, needs to make much more clear as to what truly is defined as targeting, what can be done, and what cannot be done. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we come back, a little bit of baseball talk discussing the Pittsburgh Pirates and the status of Derek Shelton as manager moving forward, along with some of the internal disasters with the roster right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Pirates and whether or not Derek Shelton should be the manager for 2023. Of course, the organization has came out and confirmed that Shelton will be the manager for 2023. Ben Charrington officially announcing that just a few weeks ago. Whether or not that's the right decision, that remains to be seen. Personally, I see both sides to it, just like with the Mike Sullivan extension. I think Derek Shelton has been dealt a terrible deck of cards in that he is not being given the proper tools to go out there and succeed with the roster that he is handed to it by Ben Charrington in the front office. There is talent on the roster in Key Brian Hayes, Brian Reynolds, and a few others. But collectively, the talent on the roster is very poor. So in that regard, I do believe that Derek Shelton should get more time. On the same note, Derek Shelton's decision-making is very poor. In-game lineup cards, whatever it may be. Now, I understand with the lineup cards, you know, that's not all on the manager. He's being told by higher-ups that he has to probably play players X number of games this person needs a day off here. This one needs a day off there. I get that there's some of that to it. But why on earth does Josh Van Meter continue to play? First of all, why is he even on the roster still? I mean, he has had time and time again to prove himself and has not done so. The fact that he is even on the roster still is a joke. But the fact that he still gets playtime is even more ridiculous or consistent playtime. If you want to throw him out there once a week, go for it. But for him to play as much as he does baffles me. You know, the in-game decisions of who comes out of the bullpen, how long they stay in for especially as of late, Pirates relievers, whether it's Colin Holderman, Will Crow, Gary De Los Santos, even David Bednar, anybody else in that bullpen as well, Stratton, Peters, whoever it may be, they are all better when they throw an inning or less. You can't really see the breakdown statistically on any website, whether it be baseball reference, fan graphs, MLB.com. But if you watch the games, you recognize that the Pirates pitchers out of the bullpen struggle when they go through a second inning of work. And that has costed the Pirates so many games this season where they turn to a reliever, goes out, has a very clean and solid inning one of work. 
Shelton sends them out there for a second inning in an effort to try and preserve arms. And it simply does not work. That pitcher then gets lit up, causes the team to either lose their lead entirely or lose it considerably to where the opponent has all the momentum in the world. And then the new pitcher comes in, tries to inherit a disaster and ends up conceding more runs. Too many times that's happened this season. Way too many times. And it's something that the Pirates need to improve on. If you do not have relievers capable of going multiple innings without getting shelled in inning number two, then you don't continue to send them out there for the second inning. Hypothetically, starter goes five. What difference does it make if you have four relievers cover four innings of play or you try to get two relievers to cover four innings of play and go two innings each and then that ultimately costs you the game? Or what happens is you try to have a reliever cover two innings of ball. They only go an inning and a third because then they get shelled. You bring in somebody like Manny Bonuelos to get the final two outs of the inning, and then you bring in somebody else for an inning. So in three innings then, you've used three pitchers. So you might as well then have just given pitcher A an inning, pitcher B an inning, pitcher C an inning. Instead of trying to get two full innings out of pitcher A and then having to backtrack because pitcher A struggles in their second inning of work. The amount of times that that has happened this season and Derek Shelton still continues to try it is beyond me. If Derek Shelton, as part of his philosophy as a manager, if he wants relievers who are capable of going multiple innings and that's something that he is staking into the ground as a foundation of his managerial philosophy then he needs to approach Ben Charrington and tell Charrington, look, I need relievers who can go multiple innings. Get me some in free agency. If that's, the, if that's what he wants to do, that's what needs to be said to Ben Charrington. You can't turn an apple into an orange, meaning somebody like Colin Holderman, who this has happened to him as well in his short time with the Pirates, is better after one inning than he is when he goes two innings. So if you don't want relievers who can only go an inning, don't sign them. Don't trade for them. Get guys who are going to fit your identity as a coach. Get players who are going to be content with the roles that you put them in and do so in a way that allows you to build a winning baseball team. It's not rocket science. If the Pirates are still experimenting, trying to figure out, you know, who can go 
multiple innings, who only can go an inning. In year three, with Derek Shelton and Ben Charrington, then I'm sorry, but that's a joke. That's a complete and utter joke. They should not be trying to still figure that out at this point. Now it needs to be focusing on getting the major league team better while also continuing to develop down in the minor leagues. Working on those simultaneously. Playing the young guys at the major league level. Players like Travis Swaggerty, Cal Mitchell, even Bly Madris, who is horrendous when he's in Pittsburgh. Guys like Rodolfo Castro, Jason DeLay behind the plate. Those are the guys that need to be getting time over Josh Van Meters, over Jose Godoy, who is not even on the team anymore as a catcher. Stop using washed-up veterans. Now that we're into September, we have seen Cal Mitchell and Johan Oviedo get called up as September call-ups. If you remember in the past, teams could call up as many prospects as they wanted in September. Now it's a limit of two, Mitchell, Oviedo being the two. And of course, the 13-pitcher rule at this point is out of effect as well because of the rosters expanding. So now you have another arm in Johan Oviedo. They're trying to turn him into a starter, which is why he reported a trip away after being acquired in the Jose Quintana trade. Fine, you want to develop him as a starter? I understand. Give him opportunities to start. This season is a wash. If Oviedo goes out there as a starter and gets shelled, then so be it. You let him finish the season as a starter, you move him to the bullpen next year, and you call it a day. If Cal Mitchell goes out there this final month, doesn't light it up, you move on from him. That's simple. You give those opportunities to somebody like Travis Swaggerty as well. They don't light it up, you move on. Because you know you have guys coming up in the minor league system behind them. And that is what's important. You have to be giving the young kids opportunities. The phrase of let the kids play is so important for the Pirates. It should have been their idea this entire season. Or at the very least, once the whole Super 2 speculation, disastrous, whatever you want to call it, went away. Once that's gone, it should have been all about letting the kids play, seeing what you have currently, recognizing where you need to address in the offseason potentially, or where you need somebody on a short-term notice while you develop someone in the minor leagues. And on that same note, looking now at the disasters of the roster, I mean, the rotation is still a mess. You have Mitch Keller, who is finally starting to turn the corner, dealing with some struggles here and there, but much more consistent than he once was. I mean, if you look at the statistics here of Mitch Keller, 
over the last month or so. He's got a 411 ERA in his last seven, 370 ERA in his last 15. So the last eight have been a little bit rougher on him than the previous. The last seven have been a little bit rougher on him than the previous eight, but he's still going out there and getting it done for the most part, improving. You've got JT Brubaker, who had started to perform well. And then right when you thought he was at the point where he looked to be doing well, he slumped. He's got a 450 ERA in his last seven. 427 ERA in his last 15. So he's topping out there at a low to mid four ERA. That can't be somebody you keep in the rotation. And then the guys behind him in the rotation, you can't even count Oviedo because he's yet to even make his first appearance. Bryce Wilson is an absolute nightmare. He's not worth anything right now. He had maybe three good starts at best, and then he went back to his usual terrible self. Zach Thompson looks awful starting for the Pirates. He can never get beyond the fifth inning because he's so inefficient. And then you just continue to deal with the same thing. The only other one in the rotation is Rowanzi Contreras, who is back after missing so many months being sent down to trip away to control his workload and quote-unquote work on things for whatever that's worth who stands in at a 3.57 ERA and has dealt with a little bit of hiccups over his last seven games. Of course, Rowanzi Contreras is just 22 years old, so I have no doubt he's capable of turning it around. But you have Keller and Contreras, Keller even being a big question mark still, who are worth anything in this Pirates rotation. Brubaker? No. You get somebody like drawing a blank here. You get somebody like Zach Thompson? Absolutely not. Bryce Wilson? Absolutely not. Tyler Beatty? Why is he even starting at this point? Why? Why does he continue to start? You're not seeing anything out of him. And the lineup as well. You know, is seeing Kevin Newman, Ben Gamble taking grounders at first in practice. Why? You have Michael Chavis. Let him play first. I understand he doesn't hit the ball well against or as well against right-handed pitchers as he does left-handed pitchers. Let him figure it out. You know, why does Van Meter continue to play first? Why are Gamble and Newman taking reps at first base? It makes absolutely zero sense. Unless he's hurt, you have Hayes play third every day. If he needs a rest day, fine. That's when you go to somebody like Rodolfo Castro or something of that nature. I mean, you have to get somebody like Tucapita Marcano more reps. Kevin Newman, more reps, whether it's at second base, whether it's at shortstop, even though he's older and he's going to be a bench piece at best. Play him. It's not that hard. And Derek Shelton, Ben Charrington, whoever is making the lineups, continues to make things much more complicated than it needs to be. 
And until that changes, it's going to hold the Pirates back drastically with the results on the field and then in turn what things look like in the standings with the win and the loss columns. And it has to change moving forward. It starts this final month of the regular season and into the offseason when Ben Charrington has his work cut out for him in terms of really getting things set for this team to improve drastically when these waves of prospects start hitting AAA and the major leagues. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Got one final segment coming up for you after the break. It's another football segment with the Pittsburgh Steelers looking at the potential running back depth behind Najee Harris along with the offensive line worries for the team based upon what happened in the preseason right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
last segment of the day here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Looking once again at the Pittsburgh Steelers, as I mentioned before the break. Running depth behind Najee Harris and the struggles of the offensive line because both are major pieces that need to be addressed. Both of them, in my opinion, have not been addressed. Things looked great for the Steelers with the potential of Anthony McFarlane Jr. to try and showcase himself. You had Master Teague, who really impressed in preseason. And I finally thought maybe the Steelers were going to have somebody solid behind Najee Harris. McFarland stunk it up in preseason, got cut. Master Teague, season-ending injury, released. So now, once again, we're stuck with Benny Snell behind Najee Harris. Of course, he signed Jason Huntley to the practice squad, but he's not really going to do a whole lot. He's on the practice squad for a reason. I mean, you look at the depth chart here behind Najee Harris and Benny Snell, there's Jalen Warren because Anthony McFarlane got cut, and that's, I mean, this is according to the Steelers app, but that's with the idea that Warren even made the roster because Anthony McFarland was still listed. I'm working here right now to confirm if Jalen Warren is, yes, he's still on the roster. So now Jalen Warren is really the only shot to be the solid running back behind Najee Harris because Benny Snell is not. I've seen enough of Benny Snell to accept that he is not anything worthwhile. In a way, I don't even know how he made the team aside from his experience because it's certainly not with his qualities as a running back in the NFL. That is for darn sure. So Najee Harris ran the ball a lot last season. Whether it's Trubisky, whether it's Pickett under center, he's probably going to be running the ball even more because of a new quarterback in a new offense. And they're going to try and keep it simple. And to keep it simple, you hand the ball off to your running back. So you're going to see a lot more Najee Harris this season, even though the Steelers are probably going to try to cut down his workload. Some Najee Harris is going to want the football. And I know with 99% certainty that Mike Tomlin is not going to tell Najee Harris. No. Mike Tomlin is a player's coach. Mike Tomlin is not going to tell Najee Harris that he is not going to give him the football. However, there are going to be times where Najee Harris is out of play to get a breather, formation differences, etc. So that's where we'll see Benny Snell, Jalen Warren. Most likely more Benny Snell than Jalen Warren, at least early in the season until something changes. But Benny Snell, just like I mentioned in the very beginning with Pickett and Trubisky, Trubisky has a short leash because of how Pickett performed. Benny Snell has a short leash because 
anybody can do better than what Benny Snell has done. And the only reason why Snell is where he is is because of his NFL experience. If Benny Snell did not have the experience that he did, he would be further down on the dip chart if he was even on it at all. And there is no denying that. Benny Snell is hanging on for dear life to remain on the Steelers roster. And I personally believe it's only a matter of time before the Steelers move on from him completely. So, Najee Harris, you have to do whatever you can to remain healthy this entire season and do so in a way that it minimizes how much you see Benny Snell. If Jalen Warren can surpass Benny Snell on the depth chart, then I have no problem with Harris getting a little bit more of a breather and trying to see and find what you have in Jalen Warren. But we've seen enough of Benny Snell. We truly have. And it's not pretty at all. The other issue that I have with the Steelers' current roster construction is the offensive line. There was so much hype surrounding the Steelers' free agency signings to bolster the offensive line after the atrocious play we saw last season. You look at who they brought in to help bolster the offensive line. Mason Cole, James Daniels, neither one of them really did a whole lot of anything in preseason. If they did, it was nothing that really wowed you. So you might be getting somebody league average at best. Of course, Mason Cole probably will still be a little bit of an upgrade over Kendrick Green at center because Kendrick Green is not a natural center. And the fact that the Steelers even tried to play him at center is just absurd to think about. It's absurd to think about the fact that they tried it. It's even more absurd to think about the fact that they did it for a full season and Ben Roethlisberger's final season at that. Then you look at left guard. You've got Kevin Dotson and Kendrick Green fighting there. Dotson did not play well at all in the preseason. He struggled. Kendrick Green, not that he's bad at a guard, but there's still a little bit of apprehension just because of what he did last season at center. And until he can consistently prove that he's a much better guard than he is a center, the apprehension, in my opinion, is justified. Dan Moore Jr. at left tackle has not done anything. He was a turnstile all preseason. I mean, he was easier to get past than anybody I've seen before on the offensive line in preseason. This isn't even regular season. If he was going up against somebody who is a solid outside linebacker or defensive end, for instance, 
J.J. Watt, if he was going up against Aaron Donald, somebody of that caliber, and they were getting past him, you know, at that point you chalk it up and say, well, it's J.J. Watt, it's Aaron Donald. It's somebody who is an elite player and is showing off what they're all about. But that was not the case with Dan Moore Jr. And then on the flip side of right tackle is Chooks Okorafor, who we all know what Chooks is at this point. Somebody who can go out there, not really flashy, gets the job done to an extent, but could certainly be upgraded. And I didn't want to bring this up when I was talking about the quarterbacks earlier because I knew I was going to be circling back to the Steelers and I knew it would end up coming out of my mouth then. I don't care whether it's Kenny Pickett or whether it's Mitch Trubisky starting week one in Cincinnati. Whoever it is, though, is going to have to be ready to move. Move within the pocket, move outside the pocket, Sometimes you might have to pick up the yards yourself and scramble because this offensive line is going to give you absolutely minimal, if any, protection. And you have to be prepared to go out there and deal with it when it happens in a game. I'm not even going to say if because it's just a matter of when it happens in the game when somebody like Dan Moore Jr. decides to continue to play like a turnstile and let people past him easier than anything I've seen before. When Kevin Dotson or Kendrick Green continue to play poorly at left guard, when Chooks Okorafor has a slump at right tackle and lets somebody past him on the opposite side, Trubisky or Pickett are going to have to move, and they're going to have to move quickly. Because this offensive line is not going to give them anything to work with. Now, I understand the Steelers have went out and brought in a few players to try and bolster the offensive line. But at this point, it's like you're trying to... You're trying to turn a pile of grass into a diamond. I mean, that's really what it is. Because none of the players that are being brought in are anything more than league average at best. I mean, it's unfortunate that this is where the Steelers have gotten to, but it should have been something that was more invested in during the draft, during free agency. I understand that Mason Cole and James Daniels took up a good bit of money. But if that was the best you could get, why would you not draft higher up with your first and your second round picks? to get offensive linemen that are better than what you have now. It doesn't matter who you have at quarterback. 
if the offensive line can't protect them, they're not going to do anything. I mean, I would have much, you know, let me go out here and say this before I even start. I like the pick of Kenny Pickett. I think he's going to be a great NFL quarterback. The fact that he landed in Pittsburgh is a great sign to see. However, I would have a much stronger feeling about this upcoming season if the Steelers would have just stuck with Mitch Trubisky like they signed him in the offseason and went out and invested a first-round pick on an offensive lineman and a third-round pick. Now, I know a second ago I mentioned first and second, but I had an epiphany there remembering that George Pickens was the second-round pick of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I would not change that for the world. George Pickens has that dog in him. Offensive linemen, interior, exterior, should have been taken round one, Pickens in round two. Round three should have been the offensive linemen, but the opposite. If you went interior round one, exterior round three, or vice versa. That needed to be addressed, and it wasn't. And that's something that is on the shoulders of Kevin Colbert because while, yes, Omar Khan was involved with this draft, this past draft, but that was Colbert's final draft. He was the GM. He had the final say in everything and ultimately was the one who presented the pick. So now Omar Khan is inheriting a little bit of a mess at the offensive line position left by his predecessor in Kevin Colbert. And... While Omar Khan is not going to come right out and say it, Mike Tomlin is not going to come right out and say it, the offensive line needs major work. And maybe it'll be something that improves as the season progresses. Only time will tell. But my biggest concern about week one in Cincinnati is not who's the starting quarterback. My biggest concern is how will the offensive line hold up against a Bengals pass rush pass rush that is very successful and then how well they respond to that pass rush knowing that the Bengals offense is one of the best in the league and the Steelers offense needing to stay on the field as much as possible to keep the Bengals offense off of it. That is going to be the big question when it comes to this Steelers team in the early going of the season. How well does the offensive line hold up? How well do they protect their QB, whether it be Pickett or Trubisky? And at this point, I'm perfectly content with being able to come on here and say, you know what, as long as the offensive line doesn't kill the Steelers or doesn't get Trubisky or Pickett killed, then anything at that point is a win and anything beyond that is a bonus because that is how low my expectations are for this Steelers offensive line. And yes, there's the adage of if you set your expectations low, you can't be disappointed. I'm not trying to set the expectations low for this offensive line. That is just how low they are after watching 
in preseason after reading the reports of how poor they were in the games of things that I potentially may have missed things that went on at training camp where I wasn't able to be there in Latrobe and recognize how poor this offensive line has been and despite the fixes and I say that in that regard intentionally you can't see it here in the studio but I did the little air quotes around fixes because they are trying to solve the problem but they are not solving it if that makes sense they're finding solutions but it's not the correct one and it's continuing to hurt the Steelers it's continuing to cost them games and cost them yards and it's something that needs to be addressed it doesn't even have to be a spectacular offensive line that's top five in the league it just has to be one that is let's say top 12 maybe top 15 that is just capable of getting the job done let's put it that way because right now the current offensive line is not you're listening to the three rivers talk show here on the bethany online radio i thank you all for tuning in to the first of many two-hour shows here on the three rivers talk show I'll be back on the air here with you next Friday, once again at 2 o'clock, for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the week. And I am looking forward to being the bright spot of your Friday afternoon next week when you look forward to the weekend right here on the Bethany Online Radio. (laughs) 